Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that we would glimpse the glory of your love. Lord, I pray that you would let us see your greatness, your kindness, your holiness. Amen. The Exodus passage that y'all heard read is one of those difficult passages that might be easier to avoid. To be honest, it was one of those ones that I was tempted not to have read this morning, not because I think there's passages we shouldn't read, but because there's passages that you shouldn't read without also talking about them. And I wasn't certain that that's what I wanted to preach on. But then I thought, at some point you need to address this, so why not now? It's difficult. It's one that would be easier to avoid because it's one of those ones that raises hard questions. God's anger towards his people, his willingness to destroy them for their sin, seems difficult to square with his love. It seems difficult to square with his love. Sort of at the outset, we need to acknowledge that there are churches that have actually majored on the anger of God, that have majored on things like hell. And they've talked so frequently about the wrath of God that they seem to have forgotten that God is love. These churches have hurt people, and they've actually distorted the scriptures. It is important for us to actually say, it's important for us to major, to, to claim that, just as the Bible says, God is love. God is love. The Bible never comes close to hinting at something like God is anger or anything like that. But the Bible declares full-throatedly, God is love. But if majoring on the love of God or fear of being like one of those churches that so pounds on the anger of God, if, if majoring on the love of God and fear of being a church like that causes us to avoid passages like this, if we only read the parts of the Bible that are pleasant, if we only read the ones that are palatable, that are easy to understand, we're actually going to end up with a tiny, shrunken, view of God. If we only read things that make sense to us at the outset, we will end up with a God who's only appropriate to us based on our inclinations and our estimations. In other words, we will not have a God who is fully God. We will not have a God who has the right to shock us, to make claims on our life, to startle us, to be holy. If we avoid the difficult passages, the point is, we will end up with a God who is actually smaller than ourselves. And, and in doing this, we will actually turn the love of God into an empty sentiment. This is really where I want to start this morning, that if we actually avoid the difficult passages that raise hard questions about judgment and justice and God's anger towards sin, we will end up with a shrunken view of love that's just a vapid sentiment, will eviscerate his justice, in other words, if we don't deal head-on with the issue of sin. And that's why, as I looked at these passages, I thought we've got to actually plunge in, because what we risk if we don't read these sorts of passages and talk about them, what we risk is actually losing a full understanding of God's goodness and his love. We need to read the difficult things so that we don't end up with a God who is smaller than us and whose love 
is an empty sentiment rather than a holy desire, a holy desire that's fierce in its longing for his creation. And so I actually want to plunge in and talk about a difficult passage, lest we risk belittling our Lord. In order to understand this passage, we actually have to understand two things. And the first is the sin that the Israelites were actually committing when they made this golden calf. The second is to understand what the Lord was actually saying to Moses. The first, the sin that they were actually committing. Theologians would look at this and say, this is either apostasy or idolatry, or perhaps both. And don't get thrown off by the big word apostasy. It's not complicated to understand. Apostasy is when somebody renounces God as God and says, I'll go worship something else. I want a different Lord. Apostasy is when someone turns their back on God and says, I would rather have someone else as my Lord. Idolatry is a bigger category. And y'all all know what idolatry is. It's when we worship anything other than God, whether it be a false religion whether it be our money, whether it be our own selves, pleasure, our desires, worshiping anything other than God, that's idolatry. Apostasy can only be committed by those who previously knew God. And so apostasy is kind of like a subcategory of idolatry. If you were to draw a Venn diagram, idolatry is this big. And inside of it, those who renounce God and then become idolaters are the ones that we say commit apostasy. Make sense? So when we look at this, we actually see the Israelites committing apostasy, turning their back on God and idolatry, worshiping something other than him. Behind both apostasy and idolatry is a question. And this is actually a question that I want to sort of like bring before y'all. The question behind both idolatry and apostasy is very simple. Whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? Who do you trust to take care of you? Who do you trust to watch over you? Whom do you serve for the sake of security? This is the question that lies behind idolatry, that lies behind apostasy. The Israelites at Sinai said, we want a God that we can see and touch. We want a God that we can control a God that we can manipulate and make to serve us and protect us the way that we understand. This is what they were seeking. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of the psychology of ancient Near Eastern idolatry, but it's actually not that far off from our own tendencies. You see, they wanted something that they had right in front of them that they could put their hands on, that they could control, that would offer them life, protection, security. We don't create golden calves when we become idolaters. But we also want a God that we can actually control, that we can put our hands on. This is why it's so easy to idolize things like money, because it's something that seems under our power and it seems to promise to us security. In other words, it's the same impulse as they were dealing with, something that I can put my hands on that will offer me a secure place, life, pleasure, something like this. This is what drives that decision. It's what drives our decision when we end up idolizing something like pleasure or power or our careers, a desire to control something that seems to offer life 
security, and goodness to us. The problem with idolatry, though, the problem with idolatry is that there is no life apart from God. This is something that I want to hang on to for a couple of minutes. The problem with idolatry is that there is actually no life there. This is the lie that the idol whispers. And I don't care whether we're talking about a golden calf in 1400 BC in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula or a person looking at their career and their bank account and their reputation now. The lie that the idol whispers is that I can give you life. Now, it doesn't say it in that blunt of terminology. Like any advertisement or any manipulation, when you pull the veil back, you realize how empty and shallow that would be if it said it that directly. But the whisper of the full bank account is security, is it not? The whisper of that golden calf was protection from these wandering tribes that would harm you. The whisper of pleasure is a life that is actually worth something, that's enjoyable, that fulfills me. The whisper of an idol is always I will give you life. This is the lie that it tells. What makes the lie subductive is that it seems to work. And it's fairly easy for us to scoff at some ancient Near Eastern tribe and say, how in the world do you believe in that? And yet examine us. We also continue to believe that something will fulfill us long after it's shown that it cannot actually deliver on that promise. We follow the same pattern, in other words. It lies, it whispers, I will give life, but it never actually delivers. And this is a place where, and I'll cut this short, but it's so important for us to realize that if you cannot create life, you can't actually deliver life. This is why that whisper of the idol, again, whether it's the golden calf or your bank account or a life of pleasure, this is why that whisper will always be a lie. Because have any of those things ever created life? And we say, well, of course not. They can't. They don't have that power. No matter the thing, whether it's a billion dollars or whether it's perfect medical technology, whether it's a golden calf or whether it's a life of pleasure, none of them have created life. And none of them are capable of creating life. And at the end, when you say, I go looking for a life from a source that cannot create, we realize the futility of this process. Only God is the source of life, because only God can actually create life. When we put it in those terms, we realize that apostasy is actually rejecting the only source of life that's offered to us. Put that starkly, we see how futile and sad it is. We hear the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah and say, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to go and hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The picture is sad. People carving out bowls in the rock, wanting them to spontaneously fill with living water. And God's saying, have you forgotten me, the one who offers that water, the one who offers life? Apostasy is turning away from the one who actually can offer life because he creates it, turning to something that cannot offer it, that will not. 
My point in actually belaboring that point is very simple. To choose apostasy is to choose death. You see the point? That when you reject the only source of life, you have chosen the end. In other words, God's willingness to actually destroy those who've turned their back on him and said, I'd like another God, thank you very much. His willingness to destroy them is not going against their desires. It's actually just fulfilling what they've chosen. He's saying, if you would like to look for life where there is only death, then I will give it to you. He grants them what they want. We perhaps might still cringe at this and go, wait a minute. Where's the patience? Where's the mercy? Like, I mean, granted, they turn from the living God to a source of death, and he says, as you wish. And we say, but, but why doesn't he stop them? Why doesn't he, like, take over? And there are so many times when we have to actually come face to the face that God will not overrule our desires. As C.S. Lewis said, heaven is a place, and I'm probably going to misquote this a bit, but heaven is a place where we say to God, your will be done. But hell is the place where God says to us, your will be done. He is allowing us to have exactly what we have chosen. He will not override us. He will not override our choices. But we still, still may say, but, but wait a minute, why wouldn't you just wait a little bit longer? Be patient with him. Maybe they would turn back. Give him a little more time. After all, this is actually God's normal pattern. First Peter says this, that he's patient in the hopes of repentance. He lets things play out over the long haul so that people might turn back to him at some point. It's very rare for him to cut something off right at the source. Even with Adam and Eve, he says, you want this, you may have it. But now you have to live with it for the whole scope of your life in hopes that they would turn and come back, turn and come back. Why does he seem so impatient here? Why is he willing to step in right away here? It's actually dangerous, I think probably inappropriate, to speculate about the motivation of God's mind here. But I think it is worth acknowledging their proximity to salvation in the covenant. Let me explain. It was just weeks ago that they were delivered through the Red Sea. That they saw the salvation and power of God at first hand. It was just days ago that they heard God proclaim from the mountain, these are the things that I want you to do. Don't have other gods before me. Don't worship idols. It was just days ago that they heard the Lord say, if you follow me, I will be your God. If you follow me, you will be my people. It was just moments ago that they heard God declare in love, I would gather you under my wings and protect you and give you life. My point is that in light of their proximity to the, the covenant and salvation, this shift, this hard turn, this rejection of God takes on new light. It looks something like adultery on a honeymoon. And like I said, it's dangerous to speculate on the motivation behind God's mind here, but it does actually give us an awareness of how ugly and egregious this was. Adultery on a honeymoon. We see the darkness of it. God has delivered these people, and yet they have rejected them. And so he looks at them. Just chapters before, in chapter 19, he said to them, you will be my people, 
But here he looks at Moses and he says, look, they're your people now. They don't want me, and so I give them up. They're your people. By the way, at this point, if you're like, I still don't like this passage. (laughs) Take comfort. Because this is not the end of the story. The first part of the story, I said there's two things that we need to understand. The first part of the story is very simply what they were doing in committing apostasy. They were rejecting the only source of life, and so God says, as you wish. The second part of the story, though, is what God was actually saying to Moses. God turns to Moses and he says, let me alone that my wrath may consume them. Let me alone as if Moses needed to give God permission. Let me alone as if Moses needed to stand back so God had room to go down. Let me alone. What's he saying to Moses here? This statement to Moses is an invitation to intercede on behalf of his people. This invitation is made all the more poignant by the fact that God reminds him of the covenant by saying, they're your people now. Reminding of the fact that God has said that these people will be my people. He reminds him even more by saying, look, I'm going to destroy them and make a nation of you. Reminding Moses of the promises that he made to Abraham to make a nation of him. Throughout this, God is actually inviting him to intercede. Now, y'all may say that's far-fetched. He seems to be saying, I'm going to destroy them. Where do you read this? Hang with me. God's inviting Moses to intercede on behalf of his people. He's challenging him. The threat's not idle. The threat that they have chosen death and therefore I will give it to him is not idle, but it is conditional. And it's conditional on the way that Moses responds. This, by the way, is the part of the passage that actually should startle us. We have a hard time as a culture with the justice of God. It's actually one of those things that we should learn to actually at least realize that this is right. But the fact that God would look at Moses and said, get out of my way, is a challenge to Moses. Are you going to stop me? That should startle us. That God would declare to Moses, are you going to do anything about this? I know I made promises to Abraham, but I'm willing to cancel them and to put them on you instead of Abraham. Will you get out of my way? Will you take the bait, as it were? This play between God and Moses is startling as he challenges him to intercede. But this is not a one-off. In fact, when you scan through the Old Testament, you discover that time and time again, God actually challenges his people and says, would you intercede for those who are dying? Would you intercede for those who deserve justice? Would you intercede for those who are wicked? There's this famous incident in Amos 7 where over and over God declares to Amos, this is what I'm going to do. And Amos cries out, Lord, please don't. You'll destroy them all. And so God relents. This is what I'm going to do. And Amos says, Lord, please don't. And God relents. Over and over, God says this to Amos. It's what God did with Jonah. Would you go intercede for those wicked people? If you think you've ever heard of wickedness, Go read about the Ninevites. Piles and piles and piles of skulls they would would stack in pyramids, showing their honor and their prowess in war. They were butchers. And God says to Jonah, would you go to them? 
And Jonah, unlike Moses, says, no, they deserve death. I'm getting as far away from there as I possibly can. Over and over, God challenges people to intercede for those who don't deserve it. And this is what he's doing with Moses here. And I think one of the most grieving and stunning verses in the Bible, in Ezekiel 22:30, the Lord says to Ezekiel, I looked for someone who would intercede, and no one stood up. And so the land was destroyed. That's stunning. That God would have held back the judgment that Judah deserved if one person would have stood up and pled. That's stunning. But it's what he does with Moses here. God's patient. He waits for his people to repent. And the thing that's actually astounding is that he's willing to hold back the fruit of our own choices if someone would merely intercede. I want you all to think about that for a second. He's not holding back something we don't deserve. It's the fruit of our choices. When we reject him, we have chosen death. It's what we deserve. But God says when someone stands in between you and that thing that you deserve, when someone pleads on your behalf, I'll give you more time so that you might come to repentance. It's what he does with Moses here. God's pushing him and saying, will you be a person who steps in between judgment and these people? And Moses says, I will. And he does it again later, saying so much as to say, even if I have to lose my own life and soul, would you save these people? Paul echoes that same language later. Romans 9, I wish that I were cut off for the sake of my people. It's language we hear from the lips of Stephen as he's being stoned. Forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Person after person after person who's willing to stand between the judgment of God and someone who doesn't deserve mercy. It's astounding that God's willing to listen to us in that regard. I want you all to hear that. God calls us in this passage to repent of the places we seek life outside him. This is the way Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 10. He uses it as a warning against idolatry. Don't seek life for you cannot get life. Don't expect to find life from something that cannot create and cannot control. But the second part of it is this question. Would you actually intercede for those who don't deserve the mercy of God? When you look around you at your families, at your workplaces, is there someone that you would stand in front of Stand in between the judgment of God and them, even. Plead for them. Beg for their repentance. It's a challenge, one that I hope that we all hear. But this isn't even the end of the story. I promise that this passage will get better. Because at this point, you may go, well, I need to become better in my prayer life. And that is something that we should actually say. And you may say, I think I need to repent of something because I've sought life from a place of death for too long. And indeed, we should repent of those places. But this isn't the end of the story, and it's certainly not the end of God's mercy and love. The fierceness of God's love, the fierceness of his mercy is seen in the fact that he's willing to be patient and hold back the fruit of our choices so that we might turn back to him. 
The fierceness of his love is seen in the fact that he actually is willing to listen to those who plead on behalf of others. This shouldn't be. It doesn't make sense. He holds back the justice that's due his creation just because others beg and plead him for more time. But the fierceness of his love is seen most in the fact that he is the intercessor himself. You see, this is where this passage leads all those figures, Abraham pleading on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Who pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah? Moses standing in front of God saying, these people who've committed adultery on the honeymoon, who've turned our back on you moments after you saved them, please save them. Moses begging for them. Amos looking at a land that's covered in crime and idolatry and saying, Lord, please give them more time. All of these figures point to the great intercessor himself. All of them point to the Lord Jesus. Because there we see the fierceness of God's love most clearly. The one who willingly steps in between the judgment of God and those who deserve every drop of that judgment and says, I will plead on these, people beha- on these people's behalf. There we see one who prayed for them. Imagine him, he weeping for them, standing over Jerusalem, saying, O oh, Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to myself the way that a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing, weeping over these people that he came for. There we see him acting as the intercessor. This is what we see in Luke 15, the gospel lesson that we just read. He says, show me the sinner. And we say, let me run the other direction because I don't want to be defiled by that person. And he says, I want lunch with you. I want lunch with you. Can I come to your home for dinner? There we see the intercessor himself pleading and acting and seeking, going after the lost, those who are choosing sin, those who are drinking from that fountain that cannot produce light. Jesus goes after them, saying, I would intercede. Moses was an imperfect intercessor. Jonah certainly was. In fact, he was a pretty rotten one. Wins the title of worst preacher ever. Entire sermon Yet 40 days and you're going to die. That's it. Couldn't bring himself to say God is good. Amos was an imperfect intercessor. Jeremiah, all of the rest. But in the Lord Jesus himself, we see the one who says there's one lost sheep. I'll spend all of my life trying to find it. There's one lost coin. I'll take everything out of the home and turn it over to find it. There we see the perfect intercessor who's never stopped pleading, who says, I will even plead with my own blood if necessary. Like I said, we confront Exodus 32, and we need to actually be reminded of the depth of sin that is idolatry. We read Exodus 32, and we need to be challenged by the fact that God is saying to you and me, would you intercede for those who are lost? But we read this passage in light of the gospel, and what we realize is is that we were the lost. We were the ones who deserved the judgment of God. We were the ones far off and broken. And Jesus came clear, saying, I will keep seeking you. I will keep pursuing you. I will go after you. He's willing to intercede for us, and he has not stopped even now. I take comfort in that that even now he stands in heaven interceding for you and for me. The places where you say, I don't even know how to pray about this. 
I keep stumbling in the same way. I can't get myself under control. The Lord is interceding for you in those places right now. He has not stopped, and he will not stop. And so as we come to him in confession in a moment, come to him freely acknowledging all the places that you have turned looking for life outside of him. Come to him knowing that he has pled with his very blood on behalf of your life. Amen.